The following is a message from Reverend Ken Belden of Wellsprings Congregation. So there's a, a book that came out this past spring called There is No Good Card for That. What to do and say when life is scary, awful, and unfair to the people that you love. It was written by a woman who was and continues to be a greeting card designer. And what she found is that when she became terribly sick with cancer is that the cards she received were absolutely inadequate to the situation of her life. They were mawkish or filled with cheap sentiment or cliche. And so she decided to write this book. There is no good card for that. I love it. There is no cheap grace in here. There is real heart and real humor when we find ourselves at those moments of true difficulty. I'm going to show you a few of them. love this first one. I wish I could take away your pain or at least take away the people who compare it to the time their hamster died. <laughs> Folks, all of these happen. And again, it's not that having a hamster isn't a meaningful thing. I have pet rabbits and I love them. But I'm not going to jump into the breach of your pain telling you about the time my rabbit died. Next one, please. If this is God's plan, God is a terrible planner. Parentheses, no offense if you're reading this, God. You did a really good job with other stuff like waterfalls and pandas. So, you know, the reverse of these, please never say this to anyone who's suffering. Please. The reverse of these, you know, they just fill that space unnecessarily. Even if you believe it, even if they believe it, be with them instead of telling them something. Next one, please. Just so you know, I am totally on board for driving you to treatment, cleaning your place, helping pick out flattering wigs, coming out with badass visualization exercises, and if you twist my arm, I guess I'd also be cool with lying on the couch and watching trashy TV together. I know. It's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. I love you. And finally, I'm so sorry you're sick. I want you to know that I will never try to sell you on some random treatment I read about on the Internet. These are jokes, and these things happen. Sadly, they do. I know especially this last one. I saw it once play out in real time on the Facebook page of one of the members of the first congregation that I served in Florida. This was a person who I helped nurture in the ministry. They actually went to the same place that I did for my Master of Divinity. And at midlife, she came down with cancer. And she fought this cancer hard, and she stayed in school, and she got her degree, and she did all the purposeful, intentional things I encourage everyone to do. You know, continue to live your life even when you're sick. She got a few extra years, and those were really meaningful years. Up until the moment of this Facebook post that I'm going to tell you about. When she said, I can't even remember the name of the drug, so-and-so drug has stopped working. And this was the drug that was the half-court shot. <laughs> it wasn't working anymore. And she said very simply, I feel sick. I'm scared. I'm tired. And I'm depressed. And most people responded to that thread with compassion 
and love and genuine concern. Say for a couple people who wanted to say, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Trust me, the woman had tried everything. And this one particular friend, I want you to sign up for this new conference that I'm offering that offers the cancer cure that they're not telling you about, whoever they are. And it was some pseudoscientific thing. But I don't care if it could have been the best cure in the world. And my friend responded, thank you, I'm doing what I can. I mean, she was drawing a line. (laughs) I'm doing what I can, and this person kept pushing it. And folks, I will say this indicates some level of spiritual maturity on my part, that I didn't write what I wanted to say. (laughs) Shut the F up, spelled out. Shut up. She's dying. Be kind, damn it. The cost of not acknowledging these truths, the basic truths of all our lives, there are grave consequences. It means we really miss something about ourselves and about each other. This brings me to today's Spirit Flicks movie. The Big Sick, the series that we do all throughout the summer about meanings that we find in contemporary and popular movies. Now, I loved, I loved this film about these two characters, Kumail Nanjiani and Emily Gordon. They're the real people here. They co-wrote the movie. This is their story, a little dramatized because, you know, movies. Another actor plays Emily. Kumail plays himself. This movie is all about what happens to people, not just characters, who want to avoid the uncomfortable, difficult truths of our lives, and then, sometimes kicking and screaming a little bit, growing into the truth. The basic truths that happen when our love must wrestle with death. So in the movie, Kumail, as he is in real life, is uh, at this point a struggling comedian in Chicago. And Emily is starting psychology to be a psychologist at the University of Chicago. And they meet because she heckles him one night during his stand-up. And they build a relationship, tentatively at first. They start to fall in love. Now all the while, this thing is happening in the background, which Emily doesn't know about, and Kumail knows too much about. He is from a traditional expression of Pakistani Muslim culture where he is to be married not by his own choice. His family, their version of his culture, practices arranged marriage. He continues to go on all of these kind of set-up matchmaking dates that his mom is so enthusiastic about And he just rolls his eyes at all of them. He doesn't want to be there, but he doesn't say anything. And here's the important thing. He doesn't say anything to Emily (laughs) until one day she's kind of rooting around his apartment. You know, when you start dating someone, you start looking at their stuff after a while. And she opens up a cigar box. And in that cigar box are pictures of a whole bunch, like 30, 40, 50 (laughs) Pakistani women. And she says, are you you judging Pakistan's next top model? (laughs) 
and the truth comes out. He is to be at some point in an arranged marriage. And this is very upsetting news, one for him to tell, two for her to hear. And she says, can you ever imagine circumstances in which we would be together? And he says, honestly, I don't know. They break up. I think that one of the things that this movie points at is a basic truth that truly, unless we intend to manipulate others, most people don't. Some people certainly do, but most people don't. Most of us lie for a variety of other reasons that have to do with shame or embarrassment or pain or disappointment or not wanting to disrupt the normal course of events, even if the normal course of events aren't working. This movie is built on very skillfully a whole series of lies that eventually are shown not to be true. There's funny ones like the night that uh, Emily, when she's staying over at Kumail's really crappy, struggling comedian apartment in Chicago, she stays over at 3 o'clock in the morning. She bounds out of bed and she says, I got to go. I got to go. And she starts to invent all these excuses. I'll go with you. No, 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 no. Until she says, and I'm going to give you the G-rated version of this. She says, I have to take a massive poop. (laughs) And she doesn't want to do this in this tiny little apartment where Kumail's 'er ne'er-do-well struggling comedian friend is passed out on the couch. (laughs) She doesn't want to call attention to it. And so they kind of clear out the apartment, give her business to do what she needs to do. But there are other more serious lies in this movie that really get in the way. Lies like when Kumail, when he goes over to the series of dinners at his parents' house, says, oh, you're going to have to excuse me for five minutes. I have to go downstairs to pray, to observe one of the five pillars of Islam, to turn towards Mecca and pray five times a day. And we see him at first laying out a prayer mat, and we think... Okay, it's really cool. He's integrating these different traditions. And then he brings out a chair. He sits on the chair. He hauls out his phone and he starts playing video games. <laughs> See, I mean, people are free to make the religious choices they want to, but he doesn't tell his parents. He's lying to them over and over and over. He lies to them about the fact that he's dating Emily at all. They call this movie The Big Sick because what happens is after They break up. Emily becomes very, very ill to the point almost of losing her life and they cannot find out what's going on and she's in a medically induced coma for weeks. And so after they break up, Kumail goes to rush to be by her side because he recognizes, wow, he really loves this person. And he meets her parents for the first time who know the story of this guy who lied to their daughter And they say, you're not welcome here. (laughs) And it's played for laughs, and at the same time, it's real. And eventually, they warm up to him, and he to them, and we recognize that they as well, too, are living in the light of a lie that almost wrecked their marriage when Emily's father cheated on Emily's mother, and they are living into that space of what happens when vows are broken. All throughout this movie. All these various untruths that build up and separate people from each other. The basic lesson here, and I think it's true in all of our lives, 
is that the truth that we think is too difficult to tell is the truth that will eat up all the space in the room, that will leave no space for us to live freely, to connect with each other, to connect in the ways that we really wish to in this life. On many of these matchmaking dates, this joke comes up over and over and over again um, that Kumail's favorite TV show is The X-Files. <laughs> and they say over, the truth is out there. To impress Kumail, you know, they've studied him, <laughs> these dates. And here's the point of the movie, is that actually, the truth is out there, whatever. The truth that really matters to many of us, it's more intimate. It's the truths that are in here, close to our lives. And we can know that telling the truth, like all spiritual practice, is best done on a daily basis. <laughs> on a regular, daily basis, in the most ordinary of circumstances, learning to tell the truth to each other, especially in those circumstances in which it may be really difficult to do so. But again, if we don't, we will find that increasingly there is less and less and less room for us to live, to move, to breathe. And it's not a coincidence at all that this movie is named The Big Sick and is a movie about people moving from falsehood to telling the truth in the face of death, what happens when love confronts death. It points to, in some ways, the great teaching from the Zen tradition, that there is only one great matter, and it is the matter of life and death. It points to what the now-deceased Unitarian Universalist minister Forrest Church said, when he said, religion is only this. Religion is waking up to the dual reality of being alive and having to die. This is how we begin to open our hearts. There are many different ways we can do this. One of the ways that I've been doing it recently is with a group of local mindfulness teachers, my sangha, one of my spiritual communities, with what we call insight dialogue. It's a teaching that is an interpersonal form of mindfulness. It is, I have to say, the most deceptively simple, amazingly beautiful practice I have ever participated in. The deceptively simple part is two people sitting across from each other, looking at one another in the eye, holding that perspective with each other, not looking away. One person speaking slowly, deliberately, allowing their experience to unfold. One person just listening and one person guiding the practice. The person guiding the practice is asking the person who is speaking and the person who is listening, come back home to your body. Speak the truth of what is arising for you in this moment with your body, with your thoughts, with your feelings. It happens by way of what are called classical contemplations within the Buddhist tradition, but other traditions as well too. Things like impermanence, craving, Clinging, change, suffering, struggle, heavy things that many of us want to, quote-unquote, figure out. But here's the cool thing in Insight Dialogue. There is no figuring it out. There is just the moment-to-moment sitting with what we notice and what happens. And we don't run away from ourselves, from each other, or the basic truths of our lives. 
This is where the magic and the healing happens in the practice. I tell you this experientially, something is taken away. I know something is taken away with me within those moments. The need to justify, the need to sound congruent in my thoughts, the need even to make sense, the need to spin, the need to tell stories, and it's just sitting with these basic truths. And I've got to tell you something absolutely beautiful emerges, some luminous presence of being alive. Now, this is still a relatively new practice for me. And every time I have participated in this formal, structured practice of insight dialogue, someone cries. Now, it is not a big, cathartic cry, oh, I figured it all out. No, I think it is that simple thing that happens when we offer our presence to another person, allow ourselves to be seen, and allow ourselves to see another person, and we don't have to run away, and we don't have to explain, and we don't have to justify, and we're just here. It is so powerful when we allow ourselves to be seen in not the full-on my truth of my life, big M, big T, but the basic truth of what's happening right here and right now. This past Thursday, my sangha met, and I was the one doing the guiding. And um, yes, I have, uh, when it comes to especially spiritual type things, a little bit of performance anxiety stuff. You know, I want to do a good job. I want to get the right method to come out. I want to create the right circumstance and experience for the people who I'm guiding into meditation. And so I was filled with all of these thoughts about me. <laughs> Moving into the practice. I didn't vocalize, I didn't verbalize them, but I felt them and I was aware of them. And you know what called me out of that space? It was observing the two people who I was guiding. One of whom had tears streaming down their face and no one jumped in to say, would you like a tissue? No one jumped in to say, I'm going to take away your pain. No one even jumped away in to say, you're suffering. There was just something moving in her. And I got to tell you, that allowed me to set aside my stuff <laughs> Me, my performance, and I was able to guide this practice, which took about 25 minutes, from a place of pure, compassionate curiosity and an open space between them. Now, you don't need a formal contemplative practice to be able to practice this form of dialogue, although I'll be honest, folks, it helps. <laughs> There's many other ways we can do it. People often talk about the value of confession, you know, kind of expiating the stuff that's hanging over our heads, which is true. But I think this is even something deeper. It's a confession of no guilt whatsoever. It's a confession to and with ourselves of our basic humanity. And to allow ourselves to be seen in this way is one of the most profoundly healing experiences that I know as a human being when there is no longer any other purpose and there is no longer any other agenda other than to simply be alive and to show up for the communion that happens. This is one of the most powerful moments in this movie. After Emily has gotten sick and is in the coma and Kumail continues to lie to his parents and thinks he's going to say at some point yes to one of these matches and he meets a woman who he actually kind of digs. <laughs> They kind of go out on a separate date outside of the family. And he delivers her back home one night to her doorstep. And she's kind of expecting, hey, they'll have a second date because they got chemistry. And he comes out and he tells the truth. 
you know, you're wonderful, you are fantastic, and I am in love with someone else. And in that moment, we see her face change. And she starts to cry. Not because she feels rejected by him, but because she is struggling just as much with this expectation upon her life that her parents are placing upon her. And she says, I'm so tired and so lonely of being set up to be married. In that moment, she becomes real to Kumail. And I would also say sitting in the theater, she becomes real to all of us. This is what happens when we speak the truth. Sometimes even the uncomfortable truths. Truth begets truth within us, between us. And the heart breaks open and a greater love can emerge. That cannot be controlled or manufactured, but I firmly believe is here all the time if we allow ourselves to open to it. So this past weekend, or a weekend ago, last weekend, uh, I had a time to get together with my family. Uh, sisters and nephew and niece and, I don't know, 10, 11 of us. I should be able to count exactly how many, but there were a bunch of us. <laughs> and we do this every year, and it's you know, basically fun. I love my family. They are deeply imperfect, <laughs> like every family that has ever been. And I could not have predicted this was going to happen but I was reminded of how when we speak the little truths, they will have profoundly, at times, long-lasting impacts. So my dad, and I want to be generous here. I love him very much. Let's just say that my dad has vast difficulty accessing his feelings or staying with his emotions. And it has really cost him in this life. My dad has suffered some real traumas. And their traumas that I don't think I will ever know the full story about. And what compounded those traumas was the loss of my mom when she was only 47. And my dad is remarried. My stepmother's a really good person. It's a great job of getting us all together. She initiates the family weekend. So this is no step monster kind of thing. And it is absolutely true that my mom was my dad's one great love. And it has disfigured his heart, this grief. So I was a little surprised when my dad somehow, I can't even remember when we got there, just kind of arrived out of the blue. He said, do you, do you remember a, a letter that someone sent us a few months after mom died? Someone she worked with at the Allentown Art Museum? Do you remember that? And like, trust me, I will take any opening my father gives me <laughs> towards emotional accessibility I mean, I've been dying for this with him for many years. And, you know, I gotta, it's not on my terms. I've got to take it when I can get it. And I said, let's go look for that. And so for the next 15 minutes, we were looking through a huge stack of papers from 25 years ago, from a quarter century ago. And we found it. And this was the letter. And I don't think you can all read it from there. So I'm going to read it to you if that's okay. 22nd of January, 1993, San Francisco, Belden, etc., etc., family. Dear Sandy, I don't believe we've ever met. I saw Jean, that's my mother, 
I saw Jean's picture in the newspaper on November 28th, and I thought I was going to read an article about something she had done. How sad I was to see it was her obituary. It has taken me all this time for me to be able to write. In 1981, I came to Allentown from Illinois, just out of graduate school and fresh from a broken engagement, looking for work in a museum. Not a hot prospect. However, after being turned away from a number of institutions by an equal number of tired-looking department heads, I met Jean. There she was, doing the work of two people on a part-time basis in an institution groaning from all sorts of growing pains, and she was smiling through it all. She hired me in a matter of hours, and for me that changed everything. I was in 24-year-old heaven. I had art, books, writing, and laughter, jeans, all day long. When I think about what I was like back then, mostly green, I thank her for her unending tolerance. She opened a door for me, and for that, I will remember her all of my life. In our crowded workspace between bookcases and file cabinets in the old library at the Allentown Art Museum, Jean talked about her family, always with love, endlessly turning mishaps into stories that range from the sweet to the hilarious, the kitchen appliance on the sidewalk in front of the brownstone in Brooklyn that got carried away in the night, true story. <laughs> Kenneth and Emily doing the wonderful kid things growing up. Jean wishing happiness for Mary. And of course, Sandy, the man we all know could do no wrong, her knight in shining armor. Anyone who knew Jean felt the love she had for all of you. There must be thousands of us out here wishing away your sorrow a little piece at a time. 25 years later, my dad set that away because some part of him needed that letter. My father, who has difficulty expressing his emotions, in that moment I looked at him. My dad, as imperfect as he is, who I love so much. And I saw it was something that I've wished for him for many years. Being in touch with his own heart. That basic truth. Simple sadness. And so to Susan, who, by the way, I am going to look up and hope I can find her. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to speak the truth about who my mother was to you. None of us know what our truths will do in the life of other people. Some truths have really long legs, a quarter century and longer. And so today I would ask all of us, all of you, all of us here, that we would speak the truths that matter and allow other people to do the same. And entrusting that path beyond our control that we would let new ways emerge and change us and change you and heal you back to this life. Fidelity is not a big word. Fidelity is a daily practice. In all of life, but especially in this tradition, revelation is unsealed 
on a daily, very intimate level in the everyday ordinary. So may we all speak the truth. May we all listen deeply. And may we all then, in wonder and in gratitude, trust the ways that all of our hearts open. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? There is a truth we say and we pray and that hopefully we do believe in this tradition, of this tradition, that there is a love so special that we don't need to be special to be loved. May we trust this, not just with our heads, with our actions and with our hearts, to call us into the spaces that are awaiting for us to co-create them. We create this life with our presence, with our love, with the truth of what is here right now because in this we turn to other people no longer behind a wall of shame, embarrassment, hiding, unformed we think, but we turn towards ourselves and to each other and find there the communion that has been promised all along because life is nothing else than what is right here. So let us turn to it, accept what we can, work with what we have and open our hearts to love ever more deeply. Amen, my friends. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.